Hello everyone, my name is Matt. I'm Luke. And we are students at The Ohio State University and we are currently enrolled in ENR 5358, Applied Vertebrate Physiological Ecology. And today we are bringing you a podcast that is looking at the effects of climate change on caribou in the Arctic. So it's a pretty interesting topic and I think we found a lot about it that we may not have known before. So we're just going to kind of dive right in here and tell you about the different uh, results that are happening because of climate change. So the first one that I found is a study by Mallory and Boyce, 2018, um, that talks about how climate change can lead to increases in predation, competition between other species, parasitism such as ticks and worms, diseases and insect harassment like mosquitoes and flies that these caribou could potentially be subject to. Um, and many of the species such as flies and mosquitoes and parasites are normally restricted to more southerly ranges than what the caribou normally live in, especially during the winter. But with the increasing temperatures that climate change is bringing on, they're finding that these species can potentially move northward and also be present for more parts of the year. And the problem that we're seeing with this is that it can cause increases in the stress that these animals are undergoing and also increase their energy expenditure and weaken their immune responses to these diseases and parasites. So in this way, stress can affect their metabolism and many other life processes and just negatively impact them in a lot of ways. Going off of that, um, I kind of found that interesting. I didn't think about this before, but um, the mosquitoes and how they move northward and how the caribou can't really escape them as the climate changes, that brought me back to thinking about the birds in Hawaii and the mosquitoes they face almost the same situation as the birds. They go up, they used to be able to go up a certain altitude and the mosquitoes wouldn't follow them because it's too cold. But with the warming weather, the mosquitoes are allowed to go farther up and beat on the birds and that is affecting their population and might be something we'll see in the caribou in the coming years. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, and I think with another part of increasing, along with increasing temperatures, uh, climate change is also um, making things drier and making drier conditions along with these increased temperatures, and I think you wanted to talk about that. Yeah, uh, going off the increased temperatures and everything drying out, the wildfires in the Arctic range, at least for the caribou, they're relatively rare and they don't happen too much. Uh, this is a problem for the caribou, though, because their primary food source, in a study done by Jant et al. in 2018, consisted of 63 to 83% of lichens. Now, that's all good and all, but lichens, 
they're very dry and very flammable because of the low humidity. So this makes them a prime suspect for, or fuel for wildfires. Uh, the recovery time for lichens, a lot of people think that fires are good for the environment. In some cases they are, but for lichens, who don't usually experience fires, it's not so good because they're a very slow-growing plant. In the caribou, they'll strongly select against the patches of lichen less than 35 years of age. And if something has to take 35 years to grow, then the caribou likely won't use it. And since the lichen takes so long to grow, the vascular plants that grow much faster in the warmer soils and climate are moving in and taking over the old environment where the lichens can be found. Um, that's that's interesting because just going off of that, I just thought about this thinking about the changes in plant communities. Um, we are seeing changes even down here in below the Arctic Circle of plants and we're seeing a lot of changes in uh, tree dispersal and the different types of trees that are found in different areas and people don't usually think of that happening up in the barren Arctic where there's not big trees to see there's just you know scrub brush but this just shows that you know it's not just trees that are being affected by climate change it's these lichens and other important food sources as well so that's pretty interesting but yeah you know along with the fire what we're experiencing right now in like the United States we just had one of the most destructive deadliest fires in our history uh, just last fall and this might be something that we'll see in the Arctic in the Caribou's range just in the future as well because they're farther north so they might not have the effects immediately that we're experiencing right now. Yeah for sure that's uh, that could be a potential problem in the future if we keep seeing these increases in temperature and drier climates. Um, but another thing that we're seeing right now, due due to these increasing temperatures, is uh, you know the rivers and lakes that are up in the Arctic Circle are known to freeze over in the winters, and there's substantial amount of ice. I mean, thick enough for these caribou to travel on, and with these increasing temperatures, there's this ice is freezing less and freezing for shorter periods of time and it is becoming less thick and uh, a study done by LeBlond et al. 2016 shows that this can disrupt these caribou migrations so not only does this inhibit them from crossing rivers and lakes where to get to their uh, different summering and wintering grounds but it's going to make them change the timing in which they migrate, which we see that in a lot of bird species as climate change has come about. But now uh, it's being seen in caribou as well and other migratory ungulates. But not only will it alter the timing of these migrations, but it's going to have to increase their energy expenditure because they have to cross this ice quicker if they're going to cross it because the ice isn't going to hold as long, be frozen as long. And if they can't cross this ice if it's not frozen or if you know it's just thin ice that it's not safe to go across they're going to have to take longer routes to go around these 
bodies of water or maybe go to a different area to find a safe place to cross. So that's just going to increase the amount of energy that they're going to spend while they're migrating. So that's going to have negative effects on other parts of their lives, the time they spend foraging and breeding and everything like that. So we can see problems arising there as well. Yeah, going off of the extreme weather portion of it with the freezing of the lakes and streams and whatnot, um, we all know that with climate change comes the more frequent extreme weather events. And these events directly affect the caribou. And just a couple of years ago, I think it was in Norway, there was that lightning strike that killed 323 reindeer. Because when they all get scared, they get close together for to comfort one another. And this lightning strike happened to strike one of them or near them and killed all of them. Um... But with climate change, this might be something that's more common in our the years to come. Yeah, yeah, we've seen a lot of unpredictable weather. I mean, even if you just look at what happened along the Mississippi River just a couple weeks ago with the, all the flooding, I mean, all these things are unpredictable, and it's affecting not only people but wildlife as well, and it's affecting all areas of the globe. So it's just one thing we're going to have to watch out for. But uh, as far as habitat goes i think you had a a statistic there for projected losses yeah by uh masood at all 2017 they were they did a almost like a simulation if we stay at the rate that we're at now with the gases and whatnot that were greenhouse gases um, by 2050 they predicted that 55% of the woodland caribou habitat would be lost. And that's on the low end. They went all the way from 55 to 98%. And 98% for the woodland caribou, that's... Uh, that, yeah. That could wipe them out. That'd be very detrimental. I mean, we've already seen extinctions happening, and I think the caribou, as a, a very beautiful species, would be very sad to be lost. But... Fortunately, not all the science is pointing towards death and destruction and bad news. So we have one study from Mallory et al. 2018 that talks about the body condition scores that these caribous are seeing and how it's related to climate change. And body condition just means that uh, when you have a higher body condition, you're healthier, you've got more body fat reserves, you know, you're, you're eating well and you're not stressed, and you're just doing pretty good for yourself. So they found that warmer temperatures increases plant growth in the Arctic, and this increased plant growth is great for caribou as the, they, they're herbivores and they eat plants. Um, and so when there's increased plant growth, they eat more and it increases their body conditions. Um, and then this also helps for reproduction and fecundity because body conditions of pregnant caribou uh, directly impact their calf's chance for survival because when they have a better body condition, they're better able to provide for their calf and they provide plenty of nutrients and are able to nurse it really well. So there are some positives to climate change in this, in this case specifically. Um, I don't think 
I think the the negatives probably outweigh the positives, but I I don't think it's uh, universally bad. So yeah, going off of that too. Yeah, you'll get you'll get the increased plant growth, but you you also got the increased chance for wildfire, and that'll wipe out. So it's almost like a double edged sword. You got the increased plant growth, but you also got the increased risk of wildfire. Yeah, that's very true. So we do we we can't ignore this problem. It's it's happening. It's it's negatively impacting these animals and other animals around the globe. But either way, we we as humans need to find ways to mitigate these effects and lower our impact on the world. So well, we we thank you all for yeah. listening. I hope you enjoyed the talk a little bit. I know we did. Yeah, I hope you got to learn a little bit more. So, and we will talk to you next time. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our podcast. My name is Matt. I'm Luke. And we are students at the Ohio State University in the School of Environment and Natural Resources, and we are currently enrolled in the class ENR 5350.02, Taxonomy and Behavior of Fishes. And today we are going to be talking about different species of invasive carps in the Great Lakes Basin. Yeah, so, like Matt said, just different species of carps. And to start it off, we figured we'd just give a little background information or start talking about the common carp or the ones everybody think of when you're at uh, a pond in a park or camp for the weekend, like pond tombing, there's carp everywhere. You just throw a bunch of little fish nuggets from a machine and they just come up and go at them. So those are the common carp that everybody thinks about. And originally, they are brought over from Europe over to the U.S. because historically over there, they're a sport fish and why wouldn't we want that over here? So we just brought them on over and we went from there. But the problem with that is these carp are extremely invasive and they grow really fast compared to other native species that we have in Ohio waters or Great Lakes waters. So the most part that they're so disruptive to the ecosystem is because of their spawning habits or where they like to feed. This is because they like to spawn in different shallow lakes or marshes and they lay their eggs on the aquatic vegetation. But the problem with this is that other species such as like northern pike like to go up in the marshes and breed like that as well. But the carp are so destructive that when they spawn they kind of exclude other native fishes. But there is a a way that native species are kind of fighting back by bluegill, for instance. They'll feed on those carp eggs and larval and use them as a food source. But the problem with this is that these carp are realizing this. So like in certain lakes, or most lakes, the carp population is in check. But when you go to marshes and whatnot, where carp can get bluegill can't, the populations are just overrun. Um, I think Matt was going to 
you were going to go in a little bit more of some of the destructive habits? Yeah, uh, the common carp, especially in wetlands and a lot of the coastal wetlands on Great Lakes, which are very beneficial to Great Lakes species for spawning and foraging, uh, they're, they're known to go and root up a lot of the aquatic vegetation, which completely kills the plant and makes it hard for the plants to come back. Um, and not only does this get rid of the plants, but it also increases the turbidity in these wetlands. Um, and that's detrimental to the habitat as a whole and detrimental to those native fish species that are trying to forage and spawn uh, in these wetlands. And a paper by Wilcox and Willens in 1999 talked about different techniques used to restore coastal wetlands on the Great Lakes. And one of their main points was trying to exclude these common carp from being able to get in and destroy these wetlands, aquatic vegetation, and cause all this turbidity. Uh, and they mentioned a few different methods. They talked about dikes, fences, and grates um, used in common carp exclusion that, uh, like the fences and grates, they will be set up so they're narrow enough that carps with their thicker bodies to not be able to pass through and then your more slender compressiform fishes like pike and walleye are able to fit through those grates and fences and another uh luke touched on this another method was predation by native predator fishes such as northern pike and the other the last method that they mentioned in the paper is implementing no-release carp fishing derbies to get the public involved and removing these common carp from the wetlands. Yeah, we're going off of wetlands. This is just kind of a little side point. But it's not just the fishes that are being affected, the native fish that are being affected by the carp, but you think about wetlands and one of the main species there is waterfowl, and that can... Just another species that the carp are affecting, but kind of getting away away from the common carp aspect, but going more towards the Asian Asian grass carp. Um, there was an interesting study done by Chapman et al. 2013, or that's when the report was published. But it was in in 2012. There were four small grass carp collected. And they're all within 451 to 514 millimeters, suggesting that they're all from the same spawning year. And those carp aren't supposed to be there in the Sandusky River. So it came to a big surprise from officials that they were. So once those fish were collected, they were later sent to the lab and the odorless were examined. And it was interesting because they found that well, let's start off. The Sandusky River, anyway, has unusually high strontium-calcium ratios, and they found high strontium-calcium ratios in these four fish. If these four fish had been raised in an aquaculture pond or pen, then these ratios would be lower and more steady. So there's one point that they made to convince themselves that these carp have been reproducing naturally in uh, Sandusky River, which should not be happening because, first of all, any carp released through the aquaculture processes 
um, are they are diploid or they're triploid so they cannot reproduce and the diploid ones that can reproduce are illegal to release or even have. So there's just one way the Sandu one way that these carp can reach the Great Lakes Basin is through Sandusky River and that's through illegal introductions. Yeah, through illegal introductions and they're not heavily populated up there yet, so we're not sure what the causes could be, but it could be detrimental to a lot of the native fish species, just like how round gobies or zebra mussels have affected the ecosystem so much. And then you were going to talk about some of the the other uh, species. Asian carps, yeah. yeah, the other species of Asian carps, uh, big head and silver carp, mainly are native to Asia. That's where they get the name Asian carps from. And they were brought to America in the 1970s for aquaculture purposes. And we know that they're established in some of the river systems in North America. And now the question is, could the, could the carp in these river systems get to the Great Lakes and cause detrimental factors there? So a study done by Cuttington et al. 2014 looked at this question to see if it's possible. So the big established populations are of these Asian carps are in the Mississippi, Illinois, Missouri, and Maumee rivers. And they're a risk to the Great Lakes because of the reasons similar to that of the grass carp and common carp, just habitat degradation and other ecosystem interruptions. And these rivers do have hydrological connections to these Great Lakes, so it is possible for these carp to travel upriver and eventually get to the Great Lakes. But there have been barrier systems implemented to try to keep them from getting upriver, such as electric barriers in certain waterways to keep them from passing by them, and more strict regulations on fish transportation have been put in place to try to keep these carp from being brought into areas where they're not supposed to be. But unfortunately, evidence, there is evidence that these carps have crossed these barriers in one way or another. In 2010, one big head carp was caught in Lake Michigan. And between 2000 and 2003, there were three big head carp caught in Lake Erie, showing that these carp have been able to get there. And their main takeaway from this uh, study that they did was although the numbers in the Great Lakes of carp right now are small because of the river systems being ideal for spawning and there's not that many rivers leading in to these Great Lakes so the probability of these carp finding mates to spawn in these rivers is high it's a very high probability as even in a small population these carp could establish in the Great Lakes. Yeah, kind of just going off of that, and like I said earlier, one female carp can produce almost close to a couple hundred thousand eggs, so you think about that, really doesn't take that many individuals before the population becomes set in stone. Um, just kind of to wrap it up here, I guess, some of the ways other than like electric to keep the carp out of the Great Lakes, one of the ways I think of for controlling them is bow fishing. That's just, just have growing up bow fishing and 
it's kind of sad when you you're going out on a lake and you see all these common carp and there's everywhere they completely outnumber all the native native species that you would like to see and then if you add in these asian carps i really want to think about what it would look like when they're introduced because of the common carp are already doing so much damage yeah, and that would that would go back to the the no release carp fishing that Wilcox and Willen suggested in their paper. Uh, bow fishing could be another. You could have another derby for bow fishing because there are quite a few people who enjoy bow fishing as well. And with bow fishing, there is no chance of release because the fish are, you know, shot with a bow, and they're not going to be able to go back and keep living even yeah, if they I mean, escape the boat. A lot of people think about bow fishing. They're like. Oh, you're just shooting this animal and killing it and not using it. Well, no. There's a lot of these bow fishing derbies or non-release derbies use the carp that are caught and they'll cook them for people. And people say they're they're good. Yeah. And, and oftentimes, like uh, the ODNR, when they do call programs, I know they will donate a lot of the meat to, like, food banks. Yeah. And I think Americans can all pretty much agree one of the best way to control these, controlling animals find a way for to make it taste good yeah so if we can make them taste good maybe we can help stop them yeah and uh it'll be interesting to see what what happens if these carp do get established and if so what the u.s fish and wildlife service or state agencies are going to implement to to try to control their populations in the great lakes yeah well guys i hope you yeah. enjoyed listening to us um, we're going to wrap it up here and we'll see you guys. And in... yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening everybody and hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time.